Hello and welcome to the Xenothesis podcast. This is episode 49, uh, in which we're covering chapters 1 and 2 from part 4, Home of Book 2, Adulthood Rights of the Xenogenesis Trilogy by Octavia E. Butler. Uh, my name is Richard Acton, and I'm joined back on Earth by my co-host. Michael Glinka. Hi, everyone. Yes, we're finally back to the crazy uh, wild Earth not on the ship anymore. It's a bit shame though, because I do wish that we spend a bit more time on this ship. Because, uh, like, when we had the first book, and obviously um, Lilith was, you know, living there before and preparing mm. for the training to go back to Earth, we didn't get to know much about the ship itself, right? Like, it, it was, you know, we saw the observatory very briefly, and then, you know, the telos and you know the, the bit of description of the but not much you know we got to get to get to more know but the ship more with from Akin's perspective when he went for the training but still that's not like mm. that i mean I, I think i can kind of see why we don't know that much about the ship i mean for starters it's not like it's not necessarily core to the narrative yeah. but also um and one of the things that works quite well for when you don't know the details of how a technology would practically work, but you still want to write hard sci-fi is like strategic ambiguity, right? True. If you just leave enough of it off screen, as it were, mm. then, you know, people can kind of plausibly backfill the gaps without you having to nail Do down it every yourself. detail. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I understand, I understand. Um, I'm sure there's, uh, well, I wonder, you know, if people have thought about... It. Actually, now thinking about it, I wonder how the perspective and explanation of the, all the stuff has changed over the years or decades, you know, mm. since the books have been published. Because it's, I think, obviously, those more, more versed in the... or who follow science more closely and uh, you know development of science i feel like it'd be interesting from their perspective how things would change how what explanation would have, uh, would be given by people of different ages um mm. to 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 the science behind in the book yeah yeah Actually, that's a point we might circle back to a little bit right towards the end in the context of uh, yeah a, a true, biological true. question so true uh, maybe we should uh, save any further discussion of that for, <laughs> for then and uh jump into your predictions for chapter one yeah absolutely absolutely so obviously back on earth uh akin you know is feeling a bit strange uh being back you know after a year i think past or a bit mm. maybe more maybe a bit less uh on the sterile ship uh you know now being back on the chaotic planet of earth um, but, you know, mm. it's time to start making the preparations for, you know, the humans uh, to become, you know, be able to be back to what they were, you know, themselves, uh, or are they being able to reproduce by themselves without the presence of an alien species as such? Yeah, that's a pretty big, uh, pretty big project he's got. <laughs> On his back, I know, right? Mm. I mean, the 20-year-old boy... I mean, nonetheless, he is going to live, I don't know, probably 200, 300 years at least, mm -hmm. um, yeah. being an Onkali construct. But um, still, yeah, that's not, a big not yet project. Formally an adult in Onkali um, yeah. understanding. Mm. 
Absolutely. So yeah, let's get to it. Get to the chapter one song sure, because sure. I mean it's very very short introductory chapter. So hmm. um, before anything happens, so the chapter one is dedicated to more of Akin thoughts and plans rather than anything happening particular. You know, being back hmm. on the wild earth, Akin you know feels strange. Like uh, as description, a profusion of life almost frightening in its complexity. Uh, but the plan was to go to Mars, and Akin could do nothing, could couldn't do anything yet, because his training was not complete. Uh, we are told that it would be after he go uh, undergoes the metamorphosis, to, uh, so becoming a fully fledged uh, adult. And um, Tikuchak and Akin came back together on Earth, actually together with Dekyacht, who, as the book describes, simply attached himself to Akin. You know. Um, mm. He must find him fascinating. It must find Akin fascinating, um, um, being the first male construct, and you know all those sort of things that we've learned from previous chapters, being like the sub-adult male and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like um, T is probably becoming male. Yes. Yes. So- um, we are told that in the book that you know he spend uh, he's spending more time with Dichan, um, which in a way makes Akin a bit sad because he realizing that he's gonna become male, uh, so there's not going to be more sort of the, the as he describes the relationship between them is going to be sort of undergoing we will undergo sort of like the separation again. Like they did when they were, you know, children. Like the, you know, that mm. the whole problem, obviously. So now he's going to become male. So he's probably going to be create uh, his own family unit. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's a bit, you know, sad. But at the same time, you know, it's good that Tikuchak at least made a decision of what who he wants to become. Mm-hmm. That's interesting how that will uh, work out for them going forward, right? Because you've got Dekiat who seems attached to Akin, Akin but yes. T can no longer really be like part of part their of a family unit. Yeah, their triplet. If they're yeah. gonna have that, yeah. I mean, mm. it depends. Like, it depends how we look at it. Uh, look at it because I mean, you know, it could be. I don't know how attached Dekiat is to Tikuchak. Hmm. It could be that. Um, maybe they're not going to be at the, I don't know it, it is interesting to see how it's going to happen so mm-hmm. um how it's going to be solved I suppose we don't really know I mean the the Ankali are so like biologically focused but uh and how they you know do their uh relationships and so on so but I don't we don't really know much about uh non like reproductive units right so the it, are mm. there any like the equivalent of homosexual relationships that exist in this setup or do they all have to be part of some kind of reproductive unit it's it's a whole it's a it's especially a, if the there's kind of that anyway in the like five-way groups that you have for the constructs yeah so it's i don't know <laughs> to be fair actually it's it's a good question because um yeah. we all we were told that um akin is going to be the wandering male right so mm-hmm. the question is whether he will stay or he will be part of that family unit of mm-hmm. let's say Tikuchak Deka and some odd and a female and then maybe two humans, right? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, the five and then maybe Akin will come back and forth, go back and forth between maybe, you know, so make a child and then go away and type of ty- type of thing, uh, you know. Yeah. 
Uh, and we don't even really know whether or not um, it's common for Owen Carly to uh, not be part of a family unit and just and not reproduce. Right? It yeah, we're not told that any, seems, at all. Yeah. yeah. I mean, g given everything we have of their culture so far, it seems super important to them that they do that, do that kind of thing. Yeah. But we don't really have any accounts of those that don't, if there are them. Yeah. I feel like in the Onkali, I wouldn't pass it by them that this thing of being not being part of a, a farm unit, uh, being even a, play, a thing in them. Like it, it could mm. be that they are so biologically programmed and if those that would not want to, I would feel like eventually they would be made to, like, you know, uh, when they undergo metamorphosis or something. Um, mm -hmm. We know, like when when um, Dichan with his family found Dekiak, the sub-adult Uloi, um, for Tikuchak and Akin. I feel like things like that would probably be corrected, if you can call it as such, to to make you uh, family units. Um, yeah, it's a, they do seem to. It, it's an odd mix, right? Because they seem fairly willing to respect individual choices, but at the same time, they also have a fairly opinionated seeming <laughs> yes, perspective on how you should conform to the... I think uh, that's a common theme throughout the whole book, you know, like, yeah, we do respect your opinion, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at the same time, not so much. Exactly, yeah. as, you know, like, yeah, we'll <laughs> listen to you, Lilith, but... Yeah, we'll listen to you, you know... Uh, um, uh, what's uh, what's the Uloi? Oh God, I forgot already the uh, name of Lilith's Uloi. Uh, Nikanj. Nikanj, oh God, God mm -hmm. forgive me. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, we'll listen to you, Nikanj. But it's just each time it's just a but, a massive button, you know, thrown mm -hmm. there in the in like a wrench. Yep. <laughs> I suppose also they they must have some um, capacity to control their population quite effectively, right? So. Uh, you know, if they're doing long interstellar voyages and stuff, they're going to have periods where they don't want substantial population growth. So they're going to have to keep that in check. And the lawyer kind of in I mean, control of how much and how frequently they actually reproduce. So, To, to be fair, Richard, yeah. when you think about it, like how... We don't really know what, how much time passes before like the birth of a child and then how many years have to pass mm. before they mature, right? We know for the human constructs, um, it is sort of following the average, maybe a bit older, um, but like the, the you know, maturing stage mm. in humans, you know, adulthood and stuff like that. It's, it's around 20-something years, right? But the four uh, on Kali... But for Onkali, the pure Onkali could be completely different. Like it could be, you know, several decades before. I sort of imagine them like fantasy mm. elves, basically. You know, like they they live several <laughs> centuries, so you know they don't have to reproduce mm. so much because their life lifehood is just there's, if they populated like humans did. Very quickly, the resources would be finishing. You know, quickly because how long yeah, they can yeah. live. Mm. That's a. An, an interesting one because their uh, society is so focused on that kind of, uh, you know, like reproduction and, and and making new mixes of of genetic stuff from the kids, and yet yeah. at the same time, the they are going to be you know resource limited when they're traveling between the stars. Exactly. And so, yeah, it seems like they probably have um, like everything with the Onkali, they're quite flexible on on their control over it so they can have these periods where they've gone and landed on a planet where they can you know reproduce like crazy because they've got a massive resource yes. abundance get loads 
and and experimentation and then yeah and bear in mind that we also yeah. you know in first book we've learned about the stasis pods so it mm. might be the case of that, that you know they're just basically sitting in those pods for like several decades centuries who knows how long completely not aging at all in this stasis of sleep and then there's some mm -hmm. oncoming in the meantime that you know take care of them and then they swap places every so often uh when they travel yeah. through space so i would say that possibly that you know and also the original uh, Onkali, you know, like we know that they're like centipede-like, the Uloi from the Arctic um, branch. They mm. sound like, you know, those beings that, you know, like a lot of things like insects that will just crawl and then hibernate in their like little shells and then basically mm -hmm. just stay there without changing at all. So Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Actually, so we, we may have only been exposed to like a relatively narrow subset of Owen Carly society that is I don't know, particularly involved in this whole project of integrating with the new species. Yeah. Maybe there's a bunch of others that are just doing their thing. Absolutely, because we were told that they were made, their forms was changed to resemble more human-like hmm. um, so that humans don't, you know, encounter the, you know, as we were laughing before, you know, a centipede with tentacles, you know, uh crawling slowly towards you like i mean like come on you know that's uh, that's already horrifying yeah. so <laughs> yeah and like a seven foot tall one as well <laughs> <laughs> uh, be not afraid uh, we come yeah. in peace <laughs> uh, if this ever gets adapted to a visual medium <laughs> I, I i really don't know like i just it's it's going to be um That'd be a challenge. Yes, yes, mm. absolutely. I mean, nowadays with the level of CGI, depending, of course, the funding of the such um, series yeah. would get. If it would get enough funding for good CGI, I think it would be no problem. Mm. Um, but let's see. But yeah, I mean, I I'm, I'm thinking that even today, it's going to have a pretty hefty CGI budget to be done well. Yes, yes, <laughs> I'm pretty sure you'd have to do it like... Um, and also the fact that they're all so varied, right? Like the, the yeah, variety between... Right? You'd, you'd need a whole host of different models with really complicated animation work and stuff. It would be... I mean, yeah. to be fair, if a company like Disney decided to do like they did with Star Wars mm -hmm. when, you know, like nowadays the Mandalorian or the Book of Boba mm -hmm. Fett where they did the amazing job with the costumes for aliens and stuff like that, I, I would mm -hmm. say that that wouldn't be much of an issue um yeah but i'm mean, talking about a company that's economy. basically more has more money than you know a lot of countries around the world so hey <laughs> yeah when disney or amazon can throw like a half billion dollars at a tv series then <laughs> yeah yeah mm -hmm. but yeah Let's let's maybe finish off this chapter because uh, we're almost mm -hmm. done here. So yeah, I, uh, as we said that he was spending time with the Chan, um, getting ready to become a male. But while Dekat was left behind at Akin's ha family house, and the reason why was because Akin had another aim: visit his old friends, people he has not seen since the age of three, the Phoenix people, and especially Gabe and Tate. And that's where the chapter ends, basically. Hmm. Um, so returning to Phoenix after almost two decades of not appearing mm -hmm. there, man. Yeah. 
And honestly, whenever like he, I, I knew that it might be coming and he has to go to Phoenix and I felt like, you know, um, but let's go to my chapter two prediction because it also, you know, like, <laughs> uh, goes in that because I, was th- I thought, I thought that, you know, uh, obviously he has to go to, uh, Phoenix to tell people about, you know, planet Mars becoming eventually a new place for them to settle. But, <laughs> you know, like I, I thought to myself. They're about their reactions, I guess, like, two decades of not seeing um, Akin. I mean, I wonder if they recognize him. Uh, Tate probably will be fine, but I wonder what Gabe will do. Like, knowing Gabe, uh, anything mm. is possible with that man. And I, I wasn't certain. Like, I, I, to be fair, I was inclining, inclining towards of um, Gabe doing something s- stupid as... Gabe does, but mm-hmm. um, I wasn't certain if, if actually anything happens. So, okay, yeah, interesting. So yeah, um, I guess let's get to get let's get to it. Yeah, let's let's get to chapter get to two. Summary. Yeah, because mm-hmm. actually this was a pretty long chapter. Um, mm. um, but I guess they had quite a lot of things to catch up with. So yeah, it's quite a lot to happen here. So yeah, the chapter begins in Phoenix, uh, or rather. A shabbier and a dirtier version of Phoenix that Akin remembered. You know, now mm. there was as Akin was approaching the city, he could, the town, he could see the trash in the streets, some dead weeds, um, scrap of all different types of materials floating everywhere, and food waste rotting away on the streets. Some of the houses were obviously vacant, with some being partially torn down and some looking so broken as if ready to fall down. I can mm. walk That's down. That's a big shift, right? So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's. I mean, it's been two decades, and um, it's. I, I mean, two decades. Initially, I I thought that Phoenix will be prospecting quite fast. Um, yeah, I mean it. it they they were at least initially you know they were on the up they were having all their tools they were uh, they seemed to be up and going but then again building Mm -hmm. but then again when tino first came to the Mm. law village he said that um at at the time when he was a kid Mm -hmm. already people were like you know leaving the village and you know some of them committed suicide some of them mm. disappeared forever some of them may have gone to the uh, onkali villages so to be fair me saying that oh from akin's perspective maybe it was more a prospective uh, village but realistically phoenix was on a decline decline all this time it's just it accelerated more mm. in the last few decades yeah, it's kind of interesting they managed to get kind of up as high as they did and then fall off that, right? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it, 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 you know, then like explaining, you know, like the first, they had the aim, you know, like trying to rebuild the um, society, the world they used to do. And then people, some, you know, eventually with time started losing hope. And that's mm-hmm. basically, you know, like that if you don't follow, if you, if you don't find means, to co- like continue fueling that hope hmm. that's you know eventually people will burn out and that's obviously yeah. what we see here yeah. i kind of got to a point of uh getting a bit stuck right they they were, they were all doing something and they made progress but then they 
kind of hit a wall. Yeah, basically a wall that you can't really bypass because you don't have the technology to to do it. So, So, yeah, Akin walked to the town openly uh, as he always did because uh, when he approached resistance settlements, you know, uh, that was probably the safest way to do it, although he had been shot once, though. And in his perspective, it wasn't problematic, more of a nuisance, but he ran away because Lilith told him that humans are not used to people healing super fast, especially after being shot. So, hmm. yeah. Yeah, this, uh, this uh, was a bit of a callback to her to Lilith's experience with, with Joseph. Yeah. Uh, uh, after he was given the ability to heal, and then when he was attacked, I think, with a... Axe. The machete, right? Oh, yeah, axe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he'd started healing that injury and they they killed him. Yeah. Because they were so unnerved by the rapid fact that healing. He's healing, yeah. Mm. So, yeah, that's... that's I, I, when I first read it, I didn't make the connection. I completely forgot about it. But when you mentioned it, it's like, mm. oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's the reason why. Yeah, a bit of a, a personal trauma for Lilith showing through him what she... Uh, what she's advising. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So yeah, to Akin's surprise, he saw rifles pointed at him. You know, years ago they were saying that there will be no guns in the town, but almost everyone now had one. Uh, also, to his surprise, people were mm. like drinking, or you know, some of them were too drunk to notice him. You know, just walking around the streets. Um, mm. And here's a bit of um, excerpt from the book. Phoenix was dying. One of the drunken men was Macy Wilton, who had acted as father to Amma and Schacht. The other was Tensio Roybaus, husband of Nessie, the woman who had wanted to amputate Amma's and Schacht's sensory tentacles. And where were Colina Wilton and Nessie? How could they let their mates, their husbands, lie in the mud, half-conscious or unconscious? And where was Gabe? I mm. mean, wow, like, honestly, this is pretty bad. Um, yeah, things like think stuff's really gone downhill. Really, like you know, when people just walk around and you know, drunk and stuff like that. I mean, I understand, but at the same time, it's sort of horrifying that how how in a decade or so things can decline quickly. Hmm. But yeah, Akin approached um, the house that was originally Tate's and Gabe's. Um, as he did, a man with a gun came out on the porch and looked down at him. Who was it? Of course, Gabe. Initially, he didn't recognize him, you know, made men to check him. Specifically, we are told it was Gilbert Sand, the same one whose wife, Anne, stood with the psycho Nessie. Uh, um, and mm. Gabe told the men that the person in front of them was a king, and one of them pointed that he should have, have, should, he should have tentacles, uh, meaning becoming an mm. adult. Um, so then Gabe asked directly to Akin, you know, and gets the answer that he's not a full adult yet. And to to give Gabe credit, he does something small and asks Akin to show his mm. tongue, because obviously that was the only specific part of the body that was pretty peculiar and strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, when when he sees that, you know, sensory organ, he's like, oh, yes, so it is you. And mm. then, you know, when Akin extended his hand to shake, not only did Gabe you know, shake it, but also, you know, grab him in the hug, you know, excited to see the boy again. So. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of, a little interesting actually how, uh, how uh, willing all the others were to kind of accept Gabe's acceptance of Akeen. Right? Yeah. They're, they just kind of slunk off disappointed that they couldn't. Shoot. Beat, beat up Akeen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, 
Yeah. So yeah, um, once confirming that King is really a King, Gabe comes the man around and takes him to the house. Um, there we find Tate lying on a long bench against the wall with pain spreading ac- spread across her face. We were told that she fell down a cliff and Yori, was the, Yori the doctor, was taking care of her. Um, Akin remembers her, Yori, you know, but to his rem- surprise, um, he remembered that she said she would leave Phoenix if people made guns. Um, Gabe sort of looks at him as like, oh, you know, as if like surprised by, you know, Akin remembering that he did say that she said that but he retorts that well nowadays guns are necessary because of raids um yeah that seems like uh so i think that's one, changed her mind after some incident yeah i think this is probably one of the reasons why the phoenix also declined is probably the raid like mm-hmm. right it's probably do you have ra- people raiding other you know humans raiding other humans ha huh. surprise surprise Instead of trying to mm. stick together in the uh, the world they're in, and it feels to me that um, probably some people escaped, and probably escaped to the Onkali for safety. So mm. that's probably one of the reasons everything is in decline. But yeah, surprisingly, Tate recognizes Akin and almost immediately. Uh, you know, he asked her how did she fall, you know, how did the fall happen and what were her injuries? Um, initially, she's too mesmerized by Akin's presence, noticing he's not an adult yet. Yeah, no, not yet, but he's back because he kept the promise to her. Um, he never forgot about her, her quick mind, her tendency to treat him like a small adult, the feeling she projected of being not quite trustworthy, just unpredictable enough to make him uneasy. But he liked her, you know, he liked Tate though, and it troubled him how much she changed, you know. She lost weight, her color, her scent, everything was wrong. She was so pale. Hmm. This is an interesting description of Tate, right? It's uh... a... <laughs> I mean, pretty accurate to be fair. Yeah, yeah. It's a... Uh... Yeah, pegs her quite well, actually. I mean, at and... the time when, you know, she was waking up by Lilith, that's hmm. what we saw, you know, like... Mm-hmm. Quick, quick to respond, quick to think, um, unpredictable, but yet mm. likable. Yeah, yeah, just not not um, not very loyal, I think, in some ways. But, I uh... feel like uh, if it wasn't for Gabe, mm. it would be different. Yeah, I think she she kind of sided with with Gabe significantly, didn't she? That was the yeah the kind of deciding factor early on yeah thought that was a better bet somehow or um at least for her yeah yeah Mm. Yeah. um gabe tells akin how it all happened when she fell down the hill um he carried her back to the salvage site which was a town of its own now but didn't have a doctor so they had to bring her back to phoenix Akin knew that she was dying, though, and what surprising, what was surprising was the fall took place nearly three months before Akin's visit. She was suffering, and no one would bring an Oloi to help her. Akin wanted to help, but was afraid of rejection, so for the time being, he decided not to do anything about it. Instead, he tells her that he came back to say he kept his promise and that he found a place where humans can live and produce without the presence of a non-Kali. The excited 
Gabe asks her where, where asks where, and eventually te Akin tells him simply, Mars. They will start terraforming the planet once Akin matures. And when Gabe asks, leave Earth to Don Kali, all over the Earth, Akin tells him yes, straight to the, his face. The man and the rest mm -hmm. of the people needed to know that he's serious. Also, he needed to have a reason for Gabe to trust Akin with Tate. Although it did not, it did go through his mind that maybe Tate would not want to live the pointless life of struggle. But nonetheless, he goes and tells her that the reason why Don Kali left him with them for so long is to learn about the humans. And the fact that he can give them Mars, Akin proceeds to tell them that, that they, they could live there, but it would have to be under, uh, you know, if they went there now, mm. they would have to live underground because of the lack of the atmosphere protecting them against the UV and the lack of water on the surface. But eventually, he could make it warmer with vegetation. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, actually, they talk um, a little bit about, you know, they're going to use modified plants to from the Owen Kali uh, engineering to uh, undertake the terraforming and um, you know, make the planet viable. I think they could even do this kind of in the, the lifetime yeah. uh, of these humans, which is going to be something on the order of twice what they've already lived, which is already quite a long life for an ordinary human. Uh, so that's, that's an impressive time scale for like substantial terraforming on Mars, right? Yeah. I've seen estimates as high as like a hundred thousand years. Uh, I mean, to for... be fair, like, uh, Kurz Gesagt had a video sometime recent about terraforming mm -hmm. Venus, I think. And mm -hmm. that was like several thousands of years of work. Mm -hmm. So it, it is really quite impressive feat to, to mm. do it just quickly but um um yeah it's it's yeah. i sort of mm. imagine it like have you ever played spore the game yeah yeah mm -hmm. do you remember that when you went got, got to the space stage uh you could get this terraforming tools and like at the end when you reach mm. the core of the of the galaxy you could get this wand that basically gives you unlimited like you press once and basically the whole planet terraforms to level three so the highest level of mm -hmm. um mm. Uh, world <laughs> Mm -hmm. So I just sort of imagine like that. They just like throw animals and um, plants on the surface of the planet and just like wait for it very quickly to spread out. And it's like, yep, it's ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean the uh, like when we've looked at what we would have to do to terraform Mars before, a substantial part of like the initial phase is warming it up enough that you could even start with something like plant life. Yeah. So, you know, this it's creating like a, a and a more dense atmosphere and um and a, a runaway greenhouse effect to warm things up. Yeah. But uh like you still have the magnetosphere problem to deal with because you have you know, cosmic radiation and yeah. solar Absolutely. wind that you need to deflect. So that's a whole other how do you fix that one? Uh, if you can uh, fix that problem, I mean, yes, that's 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 the issue. Um, because without that, I mean, even if you create atmosphere, it, it will not be kept in without any magnetic magnetic field. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, with any solar flare, all of that atmosphere is gonna be like a little, you know, cloud being blown by a wind. It's easier for it to blow away in the. Uh, if it's not got some shielding 
Absolutely. No. Oh, the lower gravity doesn't help with that either. That's that's the other thing, yeah. Mm. Uh, you'd have to like remelt the core or something, so you had a a circulating molten iron core again to get the magnetosphere back, which is a whole other order of magnitude a problem. <laughs> Actually, um, yeah. So the video of Kurzgesagt, I think. Was it someone else? I don't remember now. I've watched it and actually you could do it without the re like warming up the um core of the planet. In fact, you okay. could do it with a an object in the orbit. Um but how did it work? I do not remember. I need to f after this uh um for the reference and I'm sure I'll find this video, but it was really interesting solution and it really blew mm. my mind. I think it was Chris yeah, Gesagt cool. who did it, but I can't remember. Okay. Yeah, I'd be very interested in what solutions people have come up with to the magnetosphere problem that doesn't involve actually having a liquid iron core planet. I'll 100% find this video straight after for the references because I, it was a really elegant solution that I never mm. thought that would be possible. And uh, it was surprising, in, fa it, in fact. Mm. So... Um, I'll definitely find it cool. because it's it mm -hmm. it's sort of like oh okay that's interesting. Then know that mm. you could do this type of thing. Yeah, and the like solutions to that problem, uh, and even more uh, aggressive versions of it for cosmic radiation shielding of some form or another will be, uh, like a problem for spaceships going forward as well as yeah. trying to terraform a planet right? you need a way of dealing with that especially if you're traveling fast enough that even um like ordinary stuff would would hit you and it would be a problem because of your speed rather than its speed <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true actually yeah. if you like little little pebble floating or floating in the space could literally like just go through you like swishing mm -hmm. or like through butter Yep. If you're traveling at a substantial fraction of the speed of light and you hit a tiny speck of dust, you just, because, you know, a lot of energy. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but to be fair, going back to this, this sort of um, fragment we talked about, like, it's, hmm. I'm surprised that Akin noticed that, you no, know, Tate would not maybe want to live any more pointless life or struggle, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a this this whole um, uh, difference it seems between uh, the Owen Kali and the um, human mindset on that stuff. Like Akin seems, he's like remarking on the fact that he thinks he's probably like the Owen Kali wouldn't notice this. Like his human side is is what's permitting him to notice that uh, Tate might not. Um, be wanting to to carry on, right? To to heal and keep going yeah. in this context where she's got nothing in particular to live for, um, and that's that's a general problem with many of the other humans in this world. It seems like Leo and Carly don't don't understand why what they the way they're treating the humans is like not going over well with the humans. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, to be fair, so the the fact that, you know, Tate possibly would rather succumb to her, you know, injuries um, rather than trying to fire, heal is mm. probably 
for a being, for a non-Kali, a being that's really, I would say, well, it's they, they themselves say that they, they value life over anything. Hmm. It's probably very abstract concept so uh, you know in the in in society like that i don't think things like suicidal depression would take place it's just you know like yeah, one of those things that it's so biologically ingrained in them to survive and live that it's it's crazy like it, i don't think they wouldn't have any like sort of that type of um those type of issues I mean, it's certainly possible, right, that you'd get that rate down to incredibly low, uh, at least in circumstances they're likely to encounter. Um, Especially if an Uloi because... can make you feel great about any in, at any time, or any touch. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a point, right? They've got a kind of, a, you know, baked in um, antidepressants. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> yeah. But the... Um, uh, actually, so there's a little quote from the book that uh, I think is quite um, relevant to this point. I'll just mm -hmm. read this out. Um, it had occurred to Akeen that she might be wary of her long, pointless life that he realized was something that would not occur to the Oankali. They would not understand, even if they were told. Some would accept without understanding, but most would not. So that the bit about them understanding it, I think, is is the, the kind of interesting point, right? Yeah. They, they don't, if they didn't get it, then they wouldn't necessarily be okay with, uh, I suppose the uh, the way that the humans might want to uh, respond to the like lack of uh, hope for their future, right? Because mm. they're just kind of they've been left to live out the remainder of their life and effectively die out as the last members of their species, and that's it. They don't, they, there's no real prospect of them building another branch of human civilization so that's yeah it's pretty grim <laughs> it is it is i mean hmm. but to be fair i sort of try imagine to what then kali would do if they end up in the same position where they exactly. are like stranded on the planet there's maybe like one or two of them left and they're like what how would they feel you know being not able to do anything about the fact that you're the hmm. last of your species yeah, it might it might not necessarily be a biological thing but rather a a lack of cultural uh experience mm -hmm. of this kind of a circumstance right yeah. they just can't put themselves into the heads of the humans in their current kind of dead end of a position yeah um, but at the same time it could totally have a significant biological component i mean even in humans right things like depression and suicidality have substantial genetic components mm. And there are, you know, there are people out there who've endured all kinds of insane stuff and just it's like never really had like serious follow through on suicidal thoughts. But there are also plenty of people who've had, you know, otherwise and outwardly appearing great lives who've killed themselves. So yeah. it's like, yeah, that's, there's a, 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 you know, if you're a genetically engineering focused species and you've understood the mechanisms underneath that, you could probably dial the biological predisposition way down yeah absolutely and it could also be a cultural thing so yeah as usual as usual nice uh nature nurture uh you know 
complexity exploration. Yeah, we just yeah, it's an interesting concept that we don't know how a very alien species would react to. So hmm. it's it's one of those things as we said in the very beginning that it's one of those left untold hmm. for us to fill in the gaps. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yeah. Although um Tate now kind of seems to immediately get her like, um, you know, interest and will to live. Yeah, uh, immediately back. Yeah. Right? in this next section here. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, like when she hears about the Mars thing, she's like, "Okay, I got, I got something I might still be able to do here." Yeah. So yeah, so let's get to it then. Um, so as mm-hmm. Richard said, you know, Gabe asks him how how would they going to you know uh, do, it? and basically Akin tells him that it would be with modified plants first and then with modified animals. Um, and he's heard of an interesting egg, uh, part of the uh, you know conversation between Strayer and Burke. Don Cali have used them all before the more uh, before to make lifeless planets livable. On Cali plants, mm. gave them not Earth plants. A keen side. <laughs> if something Don Cali have modified belongs to them, then you and all your people belong to them now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, he, what he stop, gets is just silence from Gabe. It's just like yep. <laughs> yeah. Gabe, know your place. Uh, stop being a plant racist, Gabe. <laughs> um, <laughs> at least for enough, we get a silence from Gabe. But I can continue telling them that the modified organs would work much faster than the ones on Earth. He wants to work fast so that the humanity can make children now, even though their lives have been extended. Gabe says that they almost, lo- they almost lost everything and now they're going to lose their world. But I can counters that with not everything. They can take anything they want. Because the plant life from Earth will be added to it once it's hospitable enough to support that, support it. Some plants will obviously need some indoor plantation, but many of the wild flora should survive. Gabe mm-hmm. asks Akin then if it's possible with that within their lifetime, and Akin says, "Yeah, because if they keep themselves safe, they should live, to, uh, as Richard said, twice as long as they already had." Um, you know. So it's quite as we discussed. It's pretty fucking hard, fast to do like the terraforming mm-hmm. in you know maybe a century or so. Yeah, that's yeah. a it's a pretty uh, aggressive uh, time frame. <laughs> yeah, depends on how many people, ha- how many beings help Akin. You know, like and you know mm-hmm. what, how quickly they develop something like this. But yeah. Now, I, mean, I suppose with a lot of these biological things, right? If they've if they've got a bunch of organisms and stuff that can start growing, then they, you know, exponential growth and whatnot. They don't need all that many people to actually work on the project. You just set a bunch of stuff loose, and it goes and does its thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Tate surprises Akin says that she won't live more than another month, and if he could bring help. To her, if he could bring help to her, Gabe immediately protests, but Tate shuts him there, saying she will die, and asks if he believes Akin. Gabe tells her that you no know, kids lie, but Tate shuts him again, saying <laughs> that men also lie, and asks if he thinks she should die. <laughs> poor Gabe, in a way, I don't feel sorry for him, but he's you know poor for poor Gabe. Gabe, of course, says no, so she tells him to get any help possible because Yori has given up on her already. And he finally agrees to tell Akin to help help her, but uh, but you know Akin surprises both of them, saying he can do that. He can do it. What the Uloi can, you know. Hmm. Gabe Mimi says like, no, you are you're not an Uloi. How can you heal anyone? But Akin responds that he was taught. His teacher was an Uloi. Of course, he can't do everything that Uloi can, but he can help organs heal. 
of course, it will not be as efficient with Oloi. Obviously, there will not be as, as much enjoyment, but Akin can do the healing. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it, it's... Uh... He's saying he can't make it like pleasant for Tate to experience. He has to just knock her out to do yeah. it. And I'm I'm pretty sure Tate's like I I'm, I'm, I prefer it that way. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's like, it's like I'll, I'll take the weird enjoyment thing and pass on that. Yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to create uh, develop a Pavlov's response to pleasure, like you no, know, almost dying to pleasure. Thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think it seems like it's one of those things Theo and Coley also don't quite get about <laughs> the the humans. They're like, but this is much more enjoyable. Why do you want this? And yeah, like, I'm just going to jump like, off the cliff yeah. to break my leg. Oh, oh Kali, yeah. all yeah. is coming to help me. Oh, so far. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll take the fix and the unconsciousness and, and we'll, we'll leave the, the <laughs> weirdness. <laughs> but yeah, Gabe, being Gabe, says something now that almost makes Akin to stand up to square him, uh, square with him. You know, you can mm. still stink, can't you? But Akin suppresses that urge and just stares down the, the man. You know, eventually Gabe asks if Tate wants to do it, and Tate responds, "I'm dying. Of course I want to." And mm. you know, Gabe does the Gabe things. You know, and pretends to be tough, stares at Akin, waiting for him to start healing Tate. But Tate tells him just simply, fuck off, just leave and leave Akin alone and let him do his thing and not enter until she's healed. <laughs> yeah, they've got this kind of weird machismo thing going on between the two of them. <laughs> it's... it's just like, yeah, Gabe, uh, just just honestly, just leave, boy. Just leave it now. Yeah, it's, like, it's like, go stand outside. <laughs> yeah. And, no, oh dear. finally, oh, Gabe... Gabe gives in and says he's leaving and as he is Akin tells him that any interruption could heal her could kill her so he should guard the door and not let one in um Tate asks if Akin needs uh if Akin, ask Akin if she needs to do anything and Akin only says that he needs to use the tongue so it will look like he's biting her and you know, so obviously he needs to be lie down beside her um to get more comfortable and to start the process um and also so that the connection doesn't get interrupted because that could cause harm to her. And before mm. they start, Akin asked Tate if Gabe won't interfere. And she says that he learned a long time ago not to do things like that. Mm. And the chapter and ends. So, uh, it's gone. So Akin's going to look like a vampire. Basically, <laughs> yes. Basically, yeah. For this section. Um, <laughs> the chapter ends. Actually, there is some. Um, uh, uh, one of uh, Octavia's other. Uh, short series of books is actually vampires uh she might be have had idea from there like when she wrote it's like oh actually vampires could be a good idea Mm -hmm. i've not read those ones they're they're on my list oh okay okay um what's the title do you know the title um or at least i can't remember which ones no i've read the um uh the earth seed books but i I can't remember what the title of the vampire ones is off the top of my head now that's fine the parables, parable books, those are the ones with their seed. But yeah, I, the the rest of her uh, her works I've not uh, not finished. Okay, okay. So yeah, the chapter ends with Akin saying that he can't put her to sleep, like an Ola would. So he needs to guide her body to do it by itself. He then connects to her to find her organs injured, you know, some you know, bones fractures, the Huntington disease activated again. 
strained and bruised ligaments in her back, dislocated disc in her neck, badly broken kneecap, damaged both kidneys. Akin was horrified and wondered how far did she fall. But anyway, Akin started working her first stimulating the enzyme to turn off the Huntington's disease gene. He couldn't change the gene or trick her body to do something, because that would that would have to be left to the Onkali or to an Oloi to do that. And that's where mm -hmm. the chapter ends. You know, he starts healing her. But yeah, it's 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 crazy how how messed up her body was. And she must have yeah, fell extensive injury. She must have fell far, like really mm. far. I'm pretty you, you can get um kidney damage from from a fall uh i think i mean I, if I you fall on your back and you squish them then yeah, yeah. Mm. i mean at the mm. end of the day it is tissue like you know it can rip so yeah you rip yeah. enough of it and you know it, it won't heal like i mean you know maybe you would kill some minor stuff but anything more substantial than that like you know if any of the connections of the glomeri or something like that um gets mm. broken and that's 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 that, that's it you know like that's why kidneys mm. are so important that like you know you take care of them and that's why we need to yep. that's why we have two just in case yeah <laughs> and they're uh the you know the, if, if they're not working then everything else stops working pretty yeah, quick <laughs> basically <laughs> no, uh, important uh functions um yeah, so the, the Huntington's thing, this is what I was alluding to right at the beginning mm -hmm. about how uh, understanding changes a little bit over time. So we'd spoke a little bit about Huntington's before, but we didn't really speak about like the timeline of its discovery. No, no, we I haven't. We only um, talked about the cause and um, yeah. of it, but not actual like flow of the disease. Hmm. Um, I, but not even just like the life history of the disease, but rather how, so like the, the history of when it was discovered, right? It was first described in, I think, 1872. Okay. Like formally. Um, and then they kind of got a rough location of the gene in 83, 1983, um, with conventional genetic mapping methods. Mm -hmm. And then they got a more precise mapping in 93. Mm -hmm. um, so when the book was written, this one was published in 88, um, so we would have known like about roughly the where the gene was and that it was a single gene cause, but we didn't have a precise mapping of it. Yeah. And it wasn't till like 96, 97 that we got a bit of an understanding of how the triplet repeat expansion mechanism that we talked about, yeah. we talked about this yeah, before yeah. works. Um, so well, at this point, uh, what, uh, Octavia wrote about, you know, turning on the an enzyme to suppress the Huntington's disease gene could well have been a, like a, a a reasonable understanding of it at the time. Our current yeah. understanding of the mechanism, yeah, yeah, it is that if you just turn the gene off, then you wouldn't necessarily prevent some of the damage that it's doing. True. If it's a, a, a mutated form, right? It, it the the understanding uh, now is still a bit unclear, but but. A substantial part of the mechanism is thought to relate to protein aggregate formation. So, uh, as the gene is expressed and the like, um, uh, misfolded protein fragments that result from it having this kind of extended repeat section in the middle yep. get formed, they kind of you know uh, form these aggregates and impair the function of the cells that they're in. Basically, so yeah. you'd need something to clear the protein aggregates not just turn off the gene because you've you've got 
damage accumulating from that. Plus, Huntington itself, its normal function is needed yeah. in at least through embryonic development. I don't know if anyone's done a study where they um, have a promoter that has it on during development and then off once you reach adulthood, but it is at the very least embryonic lethal. So if you oh, knock okay, it out okay. completely, it can't develop. Um, uh, to be fair, so it's, it's doing something fairly important. It's pretty crazy thinking about like our cells have mechanisms to clear out unwanted proteins and like if anything, you mm. know, like protein degradation that's, you know, like, oh, this is misfolded cold, just send it over to, um, for degradation and recycling, right? Um, mm. And yet we do have diseases that basically like, yeah, misfolded proteins be created, but they're not, nothing is done about them, or at least they slowly accumulate more and more and overwhelming the cells clearing system, I would say, probably. So yeah, it seems that they managed to kind of evade whatever it is that detects the misfolded proteins, or at least, or maybe they just overwhelm it. If, there's, I, there's a sufficient if I remember correctly from my biochemistry degree, is that certain amino acids, um, once the protein is folded, should not be exposed as such. There's protein complexes that detect certain amino acids, for example, from the active sites. That um, I mean, a lot of it is um, hydrophobic amino acids. Yeah, the, yeah. So the, the they shouldn't be detected of... on the surface of the protein. That's why. And mm -hmm. if they are, then the protein is uh, assumed misfolded, and they just send it over to um, hmm. degradation because it's something went wrong in the folding process. But what you end up with with aggregates is uh, like the surface of the aggregate may still have quite a lot of. Um, polar amino acids of one kind or another, but the the bulk of it is still comprised internally mostly yeah. of um, hydrophobic amino acids. That's which is you know, that's part of normal protein folding, right? The things yeah. that cause proteins to have their shape is that hydrophobic amino acids will be inside them, and uh, so that they can be effectively away from the water, yeah. um, both from from charge and from um, at the entropic effects drive that quite a lot. Um, the amount of uh, 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 the amount of free energy that co is, is changes in the way that the water molecules are arranged mm. produces quite a substantial um, quote unquote force from entropic effects that cause hydrophobic tails to be uh, inside a protein structure, which is not really a, a kind of force that we experience at our scale. Um, the entropic effects are much more dominant in mm -hmm. that scale. Yeah. So yeah, it's um so so it's sort of so well, yeah so going back to that conversation yeah it sort of shows that it was a plausible explanation, but obviously things change and now we learn more yeah. more way we know way more about the cells and DNA in general and genes that we are aware there's way more things that can happen that you could potentially do to co to 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 control those things but hmm. it's i would it's, say it still stands i would say it's still a feasible oh, yeah. explanation hmm. to to this issue like you know yes it's it's perfectly reasonable um as written at the time you might have to tweak it ever so slightly if you were writing it these days but not by much and it's uh it, it like I think we 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 often um, kind of forget quite how rapidly understanding of biology and biotechnology Changes, and stuff has, yeah. has changed, right? Yeah. It's, it's 
I mean, the, the, the Human Genome Project was 2000. And it's only like 20 years ago when that finished. And Man, yeah. Like before that, you know, like early biochemistry stuff is kind of like 60s when that was big. And then you've got like real genetic mapping, not really getting uh, much serious uh, like uh, work done at scale beyond like individual gene mapping locations mm. beyond like the 80s and then you know into the 90s you start getting sequencing tech and that's still pretty small scale until you start doing whole genome maps and then you know, it's all post 2000 when you get a whole proliferation of other organisms genomes and uh, so it's been like you know and also development of things like epigenetic development of epigenetics or field of epigenetics yeah, yeah. in general and you know mm -hmm. all of all of those things are like really like accelerated and, uh, the understanding the, some of the methods that i think don't get as much credit is like all of the adva crazy advances in microscopy technologies and all the stuff that you can do with like fluorescent dyes and, and fluorescent protein markers and um, immunohistochemistry stuff that you can combine with microscopy. And then things like cell sorting technologies oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and Absolutely. Uh, um, proteomic methods, I mean, lipidomic methods, to be all that stuff. I mean, to just... be fair, I mean, nowadays in pathology, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. hematoxin and eosin stains are still a gold standard, right? But mm -hmm. like for those who don't know, hematoxylin is a extract from a tree, right? It's been used for like, I don't know, like a century now. And it's still being used because it's a good stain and people have been trained how to in interpret it. But like we do have methods, like if you want to like visualize a singular gene, singular gene in the cell, we can now create probes that will literally just detect that sequence and be like yep that's it and there you go it shines right like and we can literally almost pixel wise detect the cell you know the gene expression and stuff like so yeah the, the, you know there's the amount of like how quickly the technology accelerated in like the last mm. three four decades is is it's is crazy um, like a lot of that comes from combining a lot of those classical methods with modern techniques for scaling it and yep. modern informatics methods so just like taking the understanding of how these staining methods work and then just like combining them with a bunch of other techniques and you get all these sort of additive effects yeah absolutely putting these things together i mean to be fair like yeah. for me the uh this all sort of reminds me of like when blu-ray or hd disc uh dvds were created right <laughs> What they did was very simple, right? It wasn't even just a, like a, a lower wavelength um, uh, lasers. It mm. was using a laser, like a a, a cylinder-like laser, to reduce that was cancelling out the original laser, to sort of re reduce the the resolution of the of the of the final results. So, so if you imagine, like, if it's a, mm. let's say you have a centimeter um, like a dot of a laser and then you mm -hmm. shine a centimeter also in diameter but with a hole inside of it um, another laser that cancel out you end up with a spot in the middle that, that's much much smaller and that was mm -hmm. a very simple solution yeah. and yet the technology suddenly like you know instead of 700 megabytes of you know data stored on DVD or on CDs and maybe like two, three gigabytes, if I remember, like DVDs. Now you had like 70 gigabytes disks, you know, available for you, for, you know, for transferring data. So, 
and that was useful in science as well. Like that's how you know a lot of like microscopy also to uh, works. Mm -hmm. Like we are limited with the size of the light resolution. You know, like but obviously you can use electrons. That's it, but that requires special preparation. Mm -hmm. But if you want to do um, like light microscopy, you can use there's this method utilized to actually re reduce the resolution and increase the yeah. um, sorry increase the resolution super resolution microscopy yeah. right as the the they managed to do light microscopy, but at a resolution that is higher than the wavelength can result. Exactly. Exactly. Magic and trickery. Exactly. It's 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 you know like <laughs> yeah. it's 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 crazy how so sometimes a simple solution. And to be fair, when things are created, right? Like we remember the names of those big people who you know like Nikola Te Nikola Tesla or like Edison. Oh, I don't like Edison, mm -hmm. but you know, for all this like DC and AC electricity and stuff like that, but you know, but things get scaled down um, uh, for like things or like there's in the new innovations that increase the efficiency of things. You know, like if somebody mm -hmm. increases efficiency by ten, usually you remember their name. But like if you increase something that can you know just by the bit, but it's like necessary people don't know those people's name but like it's equally important like it's mm -hmm. it's it's crazy like that that step from like you know big steps are relatively easy to make but usually are well more remembered by people whereas that tiny little fraction steps that are like much more difficult to make but for maybe i mean i think it's it's sometimes um difficult or easy by different metrics right in, in some cases the the big steps are kind of uh, they require like a, a creative leap. Yes, they do. I, I do. Uh, no, don't get me wrong. I don't. I don't. Yeah. I wouldn't um, take away for mm -hmm. the achievements of those people. No, no, no. That's not what I mean. But like sometimes mm -hmm. the, the the like no like going from a resolution of like zero point zero zero one microns to like going down by a tenth mm -hmm. is a leap it, in itself and yeah. much harder step to do than you know going between. Yeah, there's a lot of um like yeah. Uh, uh, like um, trying to think about it. hard work, hard work, right? Like old school hard work of the like grinding away at it for ages, yeah, <laughs> and and being very meticulous about it to figure out the exact correct way of doing this to engineer it just so, right? That's a a different species of hard work to the making the creative leap, but still a hard yeah. And there's a lot of a lot of um, creativity in. Um, even in many of those smaller innovative leaps, like combining two things that hadn't previously been thought to be combined exactly, yeah. to, to get, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, it's, it's, that's what science is. And you know, that's what you do in PhD. You fucking cry because things don't work and you keep grinding at it until sort of <laughs> you get some sort of answer. And then you realize that you just made a little tiny baby step forward to something that, you know, <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, a lot of that is kind of, um, it falls a bit more into the category of, engineering yes. than science per se mm. right there's a lot of overlap in in some of those things at least between what what kuhn called ordinary science and engineering um whereas like kuhn's paradigm shifts are a bit more in the kind of uh, abstract creative process mm -hmm. type realm yeah it depends how you think about the different constituent components of doing the science yeah. Mm. but yeah no i think actually last episode i think we used the phrase the science the about science. something <laughs> right which uh we probably shouldn't do because like the the notion that there is the science like as a, as a monolith and the, yeah that's like any... 
that yeah, that's that's true. We shouldn't yeah. be saying that because I mean, just, it is a method of thinking of on of you know developing things. Not, uh, it's more of a technique, I would say, mm-hmm. rather than yeah, a thing like. It's uh, a, yeah, it's a process. Yes, right? it's not. It's not. It's not a thing. It's a. Yeah. It's a verb, not a noun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm. No, and it's a. Uh, an ongoing I think one the big the big the big problem here is that in schools we are talking like oh what subjects are you doing like oh biology chemistry physics blah blah oh you're doing science hmm. it's it's never treated uh, it, it's there's uh, we use science in the wrong aspect here it, it needs to hmm. this whole idea of like um it should change we should change it more to be like yeah this is more of a process than a thing biology can yeah we take it a bit too um too literally right? yes. we teach it in the sense of sciencia knowledge rather than uh like the process by which you acquire knowledge yeah right we, we teach the stuff that we have learned using the method not the like the process how we acquired that method approach right yeah. yeah it's not that the how did we figure this stuff out and that's the thing that you really have to emphasize when it comes to uh understanding what science as a process is right yeah. the method by which you find out new stuff yeah. it's not the it, it's you know, the the process by which you filter out all the bad ideas <laughs> and yes. anyone and their dog can come up with an explanation it's the 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 question is how is it a good one? Yes, yes, yes. The job, yeah, yeah. No. <sighs> good point. I need to. To be fair, I do fall into that trap often myself. To be fair, it's it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's to, a common semantic. It's it's hard thing. to fall it's out difficult. as well because yeah. when your whole childhood also always you know like use the word in a specific way and when you finally you learn that's what's proper proper meaning it's hard to um shift in a way mm-hmm. yeah and it's a it's an unfortunate gap in the way that we teach about this stuff because it it, it means you have a it's a common source of misunderstanding in the in the popular culture right and even in in academic criticisms of science there's kind of a misunderstanding of, of what it is in the abstract mm. right? this uh, and, and even a uh, when people talk about the sociology of science they think about it in terms of you know the kind of the the tribal thinking of individual groups of scientists which you know the they're, they're tribal they're as humans anyone else but the abstract project of science is aspirational right it's it's not a thing that exists in the concrete reality in it it's idealized platonic form right it's it's a thing that people are trying to do yes absolutely like the the way of uh you you often get critiques of of science which are actually not critiques of the epistemological component of science but of the sociological component of science like how science is practiced by people not the underlying process itself and people will conflate them They'll, they'll think of a critique of science meaning scientists uh as a critique of science meaning the process right uh, and nothing has come close to doing anything as useful as the process uh, and in any other domain of like epistemological approaches that can actually yield good results right that's 
you know, science is the as a method is is the pinnacle of epistemological success. <laughs> but uh, you know, as individuals and as in people who practice science and processes and societal institutions that are involved in communicating and doing it, that's a very different thing, right? They they have been variously fallible and wrong and biased, uh, but the the process of fixing that is not dismantling them and criticizing science per se. It is doing better science and organizing social institutions in such a fashion that they are better aligned to the underlying method. Absolutely. Because that's the, the it's the way you find out new stuff. Right. That, that, that's I mean, what it's it is. in a way, it's the most efficient way of finding out stuff, right? Right, like it. Well, the the efficiency is dependent on the social institutions to some significant degree, right? Well, but, I mean, yes, but no, because it's also it's you know, I mean, it depends on how well trained in the hmm. process of understanding how how apply you know the methodology of you know scientific mm. pro, you know process is a mm. person you know how well aware are they right because you know as you said you can have people who you know like you give them a problem and they just throw random solutions at them and then you have a, pro mm. a person who has been you know trained to think in a specific way, like you know, setting up hypotheses and looking the variables, what way to apply it, you know, you know, each step of analysis, you know, um, at things, and you know, and then coming out correct conclusions based on the results, and um, and then you know, being able to then verify the results by someone else who could go come and then take away the analysis by you, and then you know, be like, okay, we've looked into it. There's some maybe gaps in your understanding or something, but overall, it's mm. something. It's not just like throwing a wrench at the machine and hoping it's gonna be fine. You you find a solution mm -hmm. to it. So, um, yeah, it's a the, the sort of the lack of a mechanism for falsification, right? The lack of a mechanism for throwing out a theory if it doesn't line up with your with reality. Yeah, is what. Uh, basically every other epistemological frame uh lacks right it, there are you know various versions of how we can figure out what the truth is but none of them have quite the same sort of ratchet mechanism for improving understanding i mean to be fair into it, you know. if i can like it's it feels to me mm. that um this is this is the biggest problem with science uh in general right mm. because I mean, it's the best thing we have, like, don't get me wrong, like, I mean, you can tell by, if you look around the world, you know, like, all the technology we have is thanks to science and engineering. Um, hmm. But, you know, there are cases in the world, uh, in the life that, you know, science was wrong, or rather that the approach to things, the observations were wrong simply because, and some people stuck to their beliefs, right, and they were correct, they were correct. Like, for example, you know, the whole thing with ulcers and being caused by viruses, right? Um, situation where we've mentioned before, like, that they are caused by viruses. And the man had to, the, the researcher who did that proved it by actually hmm. getting himself, you know. Well, so this, this is one of those things where, like, it's to say the science is wrong is to say the scientific consensus was incorrect about a thing, which is always true, right? The scientific consensus will almost always be wrong about 
a thing at least at some point when a new understanding comes along right that's just the, the way that works right the way that you get less wrong about your understanding of things is you apply the scientific method iteratively to new stuff right if you're treating the scientific consensus as dogma you're not doing yeah. it right yeah absolutely right? yeah you have to apply skepticism to it and uh, make the um the predictions of the current uh, model pay their rent right they have to actually be able to uh, predict what's going on in the real world and when they start to be in error about what they're predicting then you have to correct them right it's that's it has this baked in self-correcting mechanism if you're applying it right but in free it, it you know but frequently enough we fail to apply it correctly but there's this uh, kind of attitude from some people that you should just give up on the whole project yeah because you can't get to like no no, no. it's like just because you can't get to the capital t truth doesn't mean you can't like approach it you can't not you can still get closer to it absolutely like it's uh no and you know, the, it might not be like a perfectly smooth asymptotic curve that approaches the truth it has you know some jagged bits in it but like you're still getting closer for the most part absolutely <laughs> absolutely no. but Quick question: How did we get to this conversation? I generally am. I don't know. It's probably just out on my mind. <laughs> the, 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 the current state of uh, communication of scientific problems is. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, like, to be yeah. fair, to, I I think it's we get tired. I guess that's what mm. also Rich is probably saying. Like when you hear TVs and mainstream and media be like, you know, uh, when you see people going like, but you could be wrong to a scientist. And you're like, yes, yes, absolutely. That's the whole point. I could be wrong and I will be wrong eventually mm. at some point because the, the the knowledge will change. But at this very moment, this is what we have. This is what, and we need to upload. And I think the biggest problem with this is that, you know, that that, yeah. I you know what? No, I, I'm not gonna go there because I, I I'll wind myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we. we um, and I, I think there is some validity to some of the criticism, right? We have had some institutional um, failings that need addressing to to get us better yes. at uh, actually doing the process of science better. But like that's. My my uh, my concern comes with people who express skepticism of, like, science in general, as and they seem to be meaning the actual process, and and uh, like, no, no, you really don't want to do that. <laughs> Just throwing the baby out with the bathwater if you do that. But uh, uh, yeah, uh, that's um, yeah, we've 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 had that tangent. <laughs> yeah, we had this tangent. Yeah, so yeah, I guess let's finish off here and uh, go to my chapter three prediction sure so obviously now this this was coming like i i it has to be happening something in this line that you know as akin is working on healing tate something indeed interrupts them because you know obviously they were talking about interruption they were talking about some raids so i feel like 
since Gabe told us that they need guns now because of raids, maybe a mistimed raid, like, you know, Akin is just lying there, trying to heal uh, Tate, and, you know, suddenly there's something happening, and Gabe's trying to wake them up, but he can't, you know, something type of thing, because there's shooting or something, those lines, so I feel like something is okay. building up, but what exactly, I'm mm -hmm. not certain. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, I die. So some kind of... Uh some problem arises in, in uh, Akeen's attempt to heal Tate. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, I mean, I hope yeah. that Gib is not flipping stupid enough to, to like just go and interrupt Akin. Like, I mean... Hmm. Uh, the, I mean, I have low... I mean, I have... Okay, I have zero respect <laughs> to that person. Okay? You, and you can probably tell through all... If those who listen to this podcast probably can tell already... But even I hope that he's not, you know, a amoeba uh, enough to, to like to actually do something stupid like that. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. I feel like it's yeah, going to be some like sort of like raid, problem. yeah. Yeah, yeah, something external to disrupt. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, Great. I guess that that's it, right, for today. Yeah, I think so. That's. Uh... Well then. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. We are Xenothesis. You can find all the places we upload, 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 upload our podcast on xenothesis.com. I was Michael Glinka. Uh, I was Richard Nixon. Goodbye. Bye.